What a blessing it is to be the people of God that get together and sing praises like that. We are continuing. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have not met me, we are continuing to walk through the book of Exodus. Uh, and we've got three chapters that we're going to go through today, Exodus 25 through uh, 27. We're going to go verse by verse through these chapters as we have in some of the earlier parts of Exodus, but we're going to be bouncing around in these three chapters. Um, you can follow along. There'll be a lot of text on the screen today. You can also follow along on a blue Bible. It's on page 38 in your blue Bibles. So one of the things that I took on this year uh, was, uh, is cooking uh, dinner. So my wife, uh, we had some, some life shifts, some life changes, and, uh, and really some just some dietary shifts. And she just said, hey, can you, can you be the person that takes the lead on meal planning and, uh, and, and making dinners throughout the week? And because I love my wife and I want to serve her, I said, yes, I will. Um, that is not something that I had done throughout the years. I, would, I was a pinch hitter. I'd come in and make some uh, dinners here and there, but never the person who did it all the time. And it's actually been quite fun. I've enjoyed the process uh, of cooking uh, most nights, uh, but one of the things I've realized is that some recipes are fairly involved. Uh, they're very laborious. They have lots of details and lots of, uh, you got to do this step and then this step and then this step and then this step and then this step. And sometimes if I get home at 515, it might take till 6.30, 6.45 to get it on the table. Like I, I, one of the things that, uh, one of the meals that kind of lands in our rotation is this keto uh, chicken parmesan. And uh, it's fire. It's great. Uh, but boy, oh boy, it... <laughs> It's involved, and by the time, like, there's all these work and all these steps, and I finally have completed it, the end goal is sitting down at the table with my wife and our kids and sharing a meal together and enjoying the presence of one another. That's all that work and all those details gets to that, and that's what Exodus 25 through 27 feels like. Uh, the, the details that are involved uh, in what is the construction of the tabernacle that takes up three chapters in the book of Exodus is a lot. Like you can, if you're doing a Bible reading plan and you get to these chapters, you're just like, oh, oh. Like this is, this is where a lot of people can die in their reading plans. It's just, oh, detail after detail after detail after detail. But if we don't understand why God gives all of these details, if we don't understand what all of this is for, namely, that they get to be that, uh, with God, his presence amongst his people, then we're not actually understanding what's happening here. And that's what we get to do today. We get to look at the details of how this, uh, is, how this tabernacle is constructed. But the end goal is God dwelling with his people. And we're going to see how that is good. Uh, and, and why that's significant, God dwelling with his people. And that ultimately we get to see this from the lens of a Christian looking back at Exodus 25 through 27 and why this is actually really, really good news. So let me pray, and then we're going to walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves us and sets us apart to be a people for your own possession. God, I pray that we would listen with open hearts and receive the word of God, that it would mold us and shape us and conform you into our image, into your image. God, I pray that you would help us uh, receive this and it would result in worship and delighting in you and repentance and in faith 
than in calling us to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we finished up chapter 24 last week, which was uh, the ratification, the finalizing of the covenant that started in Exodus 19, the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant through Moses with his people. So that ends in chapter 24, and then it picks up, Moses gets done with this meal to celebrate this covenant, walks up further on to Mount Sinai, enters into the glory of the Lord, the fiery cloud that's surrounding Mount Sinai, and when he enters into the cloud, he's going to receive more of the law. And that starts here in verse 1 of chapter 25 with the construction of the tabernacle. Verse 20, verse, uh, one, tw- chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet, yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. This contribution that is taken up is for the construction of the tabernacle, which we're going to see, but also we'll, where Chet will take us next week, some things that are involved with the priesthood and some of the garments they will wear. But this contribution is a major contribution. The hearts of the people may be moved, that they may give gold and silver and bronze, fine uh, linen, blue, purple, and scarlet, which is expensive to make in those times. They're to give this to the Lord for the contribution of the tabernacle. Now, a lot of these things God gave them. When the tenth plague happened and he brought Pharaoh to his knees and the people exodus in the middle of the night, they looted the Egyptians. The Egyptians freely gave up these treasures. Gold, silver, take it, get out of the land. God secured this for them. Now he's calling them once he gives them the provisions to contribute from their heart and give, which a lot can be said on there for the sake of what it means to uh, give sacrificially, but we don't have time for that. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And that's the purpose. It is to make a sanctuary that God will dwell amongst them. He will dwell in their midst This is the promise of God's presence amongst the people. And then in verse 9, it says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And the rest that follows through the rest of 25, 26, and 27 are all these details. Exactly this is how you're going to construct this. This is how you're going to construct all the worships, the elements of worship for the tabernacle. Now, You may be different than me, but I'm going to go on a limb and say you're probably not, that the word tabernacle is just not a word that you use very often. I'm going on vacation starting on Saturday. I'm going to be gone for a week, and at no point is my wife going to say, honey, did you pack the tabernacle? It's not a thing. That's for me and my household. It's just not the word that we use, okay? But tabernacle, it's unfamiliar to many of us. It simply means a dwelling place. 
and more specifically, a dwelling tent. That's what tabernacle means. It's construction of a dwelling place, a dwelling tent, where the presence of God will reside amongst his people. And in verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Sanctuary just means holy place. This tabernacle will be a holy place where God will dwell in their midst. That's the purpose of this tabernacle, that they will have a place where God will be with them. And this is very significant. And the reason this is significant is because God has not dwelt with his people since the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God made the universe and he made his crowning jewel of creation, mankind. He made Adam and Eve and he dwelt among them in the garden. Like we don't have categories for this, but the, 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 God's presence was amongst, amongst them. He resided with them. They lived in perfect harmony with one another. It was glorious and it was wonderful that they could behold God in his glory. Like we, we don't know what that's like. The people of God don't know what that's like because God is awesome and powerful and mighty and the people could behold him with clear eyes. Adam and Eve got to live in the presence of God and it was wonderful. And then it all comes falling apart. When Adam and Eve uh, choose to sin against God, bringing sin into creation, standing themselves and the rest of creation, that mars the relationship between God and man to where humanity, because of sin, can no longer dwell in the presence of a holy and glorious, perfect God. Sin does not belong in the presence of a holy and perfect God. Therefore, they are banished and kicked out of the garden. Genesis 3.24 says, He drove the man, uh, he, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Meaning, they are no longer invited into the presence of God. Because of their sin, they can no longer be with him, so you're, you're kicked out east of Eden. And this continues even further when Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis 4, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain, because he commits the grotesque uh, sin of murder, moves further east. Thus, if moving east of Eden is because of our sin, humanity has continued to move further east of Eden. And that's the state, further away from the presence of God. And that continues and continues and continues, further away from the original design of God amongst his people. And then God brings about the plan to fix this. He chooses a people for his own possession, Abraham and his descendants. He blesses Abraham and his descendants. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They exodus out of Egypt. And then, as we saw last week, they enter into the covenant with God and they become the kingdom of priests, is the language that we saw last week and back when we were in Exodus 19. They become the kingdom of priests where 
God's presence will be amongst them once again. And that begins with the construction of the tabernacle, which is why it's important once they are, the covenant is solidified and ratified. Next instructions, build the tabernacle. And then we get the very first of these instructions in chapter 25, a dwelling place where God can once again be amongst his people who were banished from Eden. And receiving this had to be wonderful news. Wait a second. God is going to be amongst us again? This is good news. How wonderful of, of, of the message that God is going to dwell with his people again. They must have with joy constructed the tabernacle. God is going to be in here. He's, he's going to, his presence will be with us again. But then when you see some of the intricacies and some of the different stages of construction, when you see some of the, the levels of separation that God makes within the tabernacle, you start to see that it's not going to be just like it was in Eden. So yes, this is wonderful. God is going to be amongst his people again. He's going to dwell with them, but it's not going to be the same because there's going to be separation because the people are still sinful. And because of their sin, they cannot be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. So what I want to do is I want to walk through some of the construction of the tabernacle and help us see some of the intentionality that God has for them in creating this so that it creates some levels of separation with God and his people. So this is a picture of the tabernacle. I worked all weekend drawing it, and here it is. Um, no, it would be very bad if you've ever seen me draw. If you've ever been to a training weekend where you've seen me whiteboard, you know there's no way I could do that. But that's just an illustration. We don't know if that's exactly what it looked like, but we have some pretty detailed construction plans that we see in Exodus 25 through 27, and I think this is a pretty fair drawing. So the first thing I want you to see out of this is that it's not an open-air tent. I know that looks like an open-air tent, but what they're doing is, is they're showing you behind the scenes. This is artistry, you guys. It's just imagine the one side covers all the way over the top. They're just letting you see the inside. But it's a covered tent. It's not, it's not open-air. And we read that in Exodus 26, 14. You shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on the top. That it is not an open-air tent at all. It's not an open-air tabernacle that, that, that God's presence cannot be freely seen by the people because of their sin. They cannot see the glory of God. I mean, when God speaks powerfully, they shudder in fear. There's no way they can see the presence of God. And even more to the point, what we read and what we see later in the law is that the only people that can enter this entire area is one part of the tribe, uh, one part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's the tribe of Levi, specifically the Levitical priests. That those are the only people that can enter into this area. So the rest of the tribes, the rest of the people, can't even be in this immediate area. Because God is too powerful. He's too glorious. And there needs to be separation. So only the Levitical priests can do these services in this area. The next area I want us to, to focus on is this outer area called the outer court. In Exodus 27, 9, it says, You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Cubit is about elbow to finger, about 18 inches. That's the a measurement that we don't use anymore. 
But if you go back to this picture, this outer court is where the Levitical priests could make sacrifices. So picture the people of God at a distance approach with their sacrifice. And the reason we've walked through this a little bit in Exodus, but you see this in Exodus and later on in the book of Leviticus, that they have to offer sacrifices uh, for atonement for their sin. It's a very visual, gruesome reminder. This is what sin costs. It costs death. And they would bring their sacrifice. They bring their goat, but they can't enter into this area. So there had to be a fearful, joyful worship approaching and saying, here, take, take the lamb, take the oxen. And then walking away, the Levitical priest could come into this area, slaughter. Most likely there were probably tables on the sides for the slaughter. And they'd come to this altar right here, which I want to read from Exodus 21, 27, verse 1 and 2. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall overlay it with bronze. This is called the bronze altar. So in this area, there's a bronze altar, and they made this so that sacrifices could be offered onto this. To the Lord. And that wash basin right there also, it comes in Exodus, uh, I think, 30. We get instructions on this. And that wash basin was so that they could cleanse their hands before and after offering sacrifices on the bronze altar and before entering into the inner part, which we'll get to in a moment. But they would do these regular sacrifices, these regular services over and over Again, so that's the outer court, but there's a level of separation even further, and that goes into the first room and entering the tent, and that room is called the holy place. So in Exodus 26, verse 33, it says, And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. So there's two rooms. Go back to the uh, picture real quick. You got the holy place, and then the innermost room, which we'll get to in a moment, is the most holy place, or what's also called the holy of holies. So let's look at some of the elements that are on this first room, because there are a few elements of service that the Levitical priests would enter into in order to uh, continue this worship for God on behalf of the people. So let's look at the first element of worship, which is the bread of the presence. In Exodus 25, it says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Verse 30, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So, that's the construction of this table. This is the table for the bread of the presence. So, they're to make this table, place it in there, and the Levitical priests will approach the table and regularly stock it with, first will be manna, but later on is bread. And they'll bring this to it over and over again. Now, is that because God needs to eat? Does God need a snack? No, God does not need food. 
He is inexhaustible. He is not like us. He doesn't need sustenance at all. He, it's something bigger than that. And that's when you see a lot of the different elements that are involved in this worship have deep significance. And the point of this is that food and meals and their time more so than ours are meant for fellowship. You break bread with someone, that's fellowship. A lot of times we're eating meals and it's quick. It's just to get food in and move on. But every now and then we have meals that have importance like Thanksgiving or Sunday after uh, worship. You eat with people and it's fellowship. That's what this is. It's simply a very visual, regular reminder that God has fellowship with this people. That God has fellowship with them in the same way that a loving grandma makes cookies all the time and keeps the cookie jar stocked with cookies because she knows at any moment her grandkids who were always welcome can come in at any moment and have some cookies with her at the table you have fellowship with god israelites this bread and this table is a reminder that out of all the peoples and all of creation you have fellowship with god what a beautiful picture that the priests get to regularly uh, uh, be reminded of and teach the people that they have fellowship with God. The next element that we'll look at is the golden lampstand. In Exodus 25, 31, it says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. So this is what it, what it might look like, this golden lampstand. And there's further instructions for how it's supposed to look, but I don't want to be uh, take too long to walk through this. But they're to have this golden lampstand and to set it in there. And it should be regularly tended to so that it will not go dark. We read that in Exodus 27, verse 20 and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, it's called the tent of meeting also because Moses is where he's going to receive more of the law later where he meets with God in the Holy of Holies. But it's called the tent of meeting as well. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So they are to regularly make sure that it's stocked with olive oil so that it will stay lit. Which, just in case you didn't know this, that's, olive oil can be used as, a, as, a, uh, as fuel for a flame. It's really important that you should know that because let's just say no one specific in this room is cooking a lot more for their wife because she asked them to and they cook a lot with olive oil when it comes to chicken because it's healthy and it's good and let's say you grill a lot with uh, uh, said olive oil and you're basting the chicken over and over again with olive oil and you continue to do this day in and day out making wonderful meals for your wife because that's this, it's a way you get to sacrifice for, and they're very good when you grill chicken and put it on salad. But let's just say you continue to put olive oil on the grill, and you don't clean out, clean out the base of the, the drip pan of the grill. And then all of a sudden, one day, you put the chicken on the grill, and then you walk away, and you come back out. And not only is the chicken charred to bits, but your house is about to be on fire because olive oil is flammable. <laughs> Nobody specifically but the more you know, just be careful when you cook with olive oil because enough of it will burn a house down, okay? 
they, the, listen, the people of God understood this, which is why they took pure beaten olive oil and they brought it regularly as a contribution to the temple so that that lampstand, that lamp would stay lit. And the significance of that is that God is the light and the darkness and that light will never fade. That in his tabernacle, it will stay lit through the night because God's light eternally shines in the darkness. It's a wonderful picture that we see here. It gets pulled throughout the rest of the Bible. So in this room, you've got, you see the, the lampstand in the back, the bread of the presence, and then we're going to look at the altar for incense in Exodus 30. Because it says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. Okay, so this is another additional element of worship, and I'll show you what it looks like, a rendition of it. They would regularly burn incense in the tabernacle. This is just symbolic of fragrant worship to the Lord. So, these are some of the regular responsibilities they had in the holy place. But that curtain behind it is there for a reason. It separates the holy place from the most holy place place. Now, Exodus 6.33 says, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. Behind that curtain, the holy of holies, what's called the most holy place, is where the presence of God resides. Now, God is everywhere, sees everything. He's not a genie in a lamp. It's not just behind this room only, but they needed a special place for the presence of God, for the people, so they know that he's with them. So a special part of the presence of God is behind that curtain in the most holy place. And the main element of worship in that room is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you may be familiar with this, though I will say it's a little bit different than the movie. Pick up an Exodus 25. It says, and you shall put the mercy seat. This is the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark. And the Ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, which is where he meets with Moses later, why it's called the Tent of Meeting. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you and commandment for the people of Israel. So, so rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, we don't know what cherubim look like. Also, we don't know fully, but from the instructions, this is somewhat of a helpful picture to help us see what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. And there's all types of instructions surrounding how to build this that I'm not going to get into that describe different elements of this. But once Moses receives the rest of the law, in the tent of the meeting, this place is off limits. It is off limits. That Ark of the Covenant will contain the Ten Commandments and some other items. But the important part of the Ark of the Covenant is the lid, and it's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is important because there's one day out of the year where one person, the high priest, cannot just go into the holy place, but go into the holy of holies. And this day is called the Day of Atonement. If you ever see your calendar around September, and it says Yom Kippur, 
That's the most holy Jewish holiday. It's called Day of Atonement. And once a year, the high priest could do a bunch of rituals beforehand to prepare himself and the people in sacrifices. And he would take blood of one of the sacrifices and enter into the holy place and then with fear and reverence enter behind that curtain. And he would spatter blood onto the mercy seat. Really, all of the sacrifices that are done all year in the outer court, they all funnel into this one day on the Day of Atonement where that high priest can enter behind that curtain and offer blood on the mercy seat. And it was a glorious, reverent, worshipful day where they celebrated that our sins are covered. And it was a terrifying and awesome experience that one priest, one day a year, on behalf of the people, could enter into. And for the rest of the years of ministry in the tabernacle, and what's later the tabernacle is converted into the temple, which is the brick-and-mortar version of the tabernacle, this is the regular worship that they would do, and then the one-day-of-year worship that they would take part in in the Day of Atonement. So this is what they got to have with God, with him and his presence. And in a lot of ways, it's wonderful. It's so good because God hasn't been with the people. He's not been amongst humanity like this. But man, it's a far cry from the garden. I mean, it it is nowhere close to how it was when Adam and Eve had wonderful fellowship, when they could behold God for who he is in the garden. I mean, the best this version can offer is the majority of the Israelites can't even enter into that area. And then a few of them can enter further into the area. And then one of them, once a year, can enter into the Holy of Holies. And if all the directions are followed and all the rituals are kept, there's got to be this longing, this longing for what was lost at Eden. Like a, like a, like a lonely person longing for the friendships of yesteryears or a starving person who's remembering the last time they got to feast. There has to be this, this longing to be. I, I, I just, I wonder what it was like in the garden. I wonder what it was like to be in the presence of God and to look at him and behold him, not to have to go through all these steps in order just to be in the presence of him. But man, what would that have been like in that longing within them? Continued for century and for century and for century and for century and for century with the temple and the tabernacle, longing for once again for Eden to be restored. And then, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, was with God and was God. And then he pulls the argument down into verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The word dwelt there in the original language literally means tabernacled. There's this longing to see God. This longing to be in his presence. 
And God answers that longing by taking on human flesh and tabernacling amongst us by pitching his tent among us in the form of human flesh. That makes a lot of sense when you read the Gospels and you see these people who get it and they see Jesus and they fall on their face and they are in joyously worshiping Jesus. You know why? Because they get it. God is with us, Emmanuel. He's dwelling. It's right there. We've been longing for this. We've missed this since Eden. And now he's here tabernacling in the flesh. How wonderful is that God is here. But what is he here to do? What is Jesus tabernacling in the flesh to do? Well, he's here to make atonement. He's here ultimately for the day of atonement. The final day of atonement, when his perfect righteous record, his perfect obedience of the law is brought into the final day of atonement when he goes to the cross, fulfilling the day of atonement, fulfilling the entire sacrificial system. And I don't want us to miss this monumental moment that happens right after Christ breathes his last breath, right after he pours out his blood and his life on the cross. Then in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, verse 50 of chapter 27, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It is finished. He is dead. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is is the curtain that divided the holy of holies from the holy place. That's the curtain that was a regular reminder that you can't come here. You can't be in his presence. You don't have direct access to God because of your sin. And Jesus breathes his final breath and that curtain is torn in two. It is finished. It is done. And the people of God have access to him because of the work of Christ. How wonderful is that? How beautiful is that? That we have access to Jesus because of his work. The curtain is torn in two. What a wonderful picture of fulfilling the tabernacle with his life, death, and ultimately his resurrection. And then, boy, oh, boy, God doesn't stop. Man, he doesn't stop. He keeps pulling that thread from Exodus 25 through 27, and it gets even better. Ephesians 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. What he's picturing here is that you're no longer strangers and exiles. You're no longer foreign. No, you're being brought into the family of God where you will be the new tabernacle, the new temple. He goes on, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a, what? Dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
And what that shows us is not only do we have direct access to God, but the curtain is torn. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who we have access to him and the Father and how glorious that is. Not only that, the church of Jesus Christ is the new tabernacle, the new temple, whom God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit fills us. Just as God's Spirit, as we'll see, just as God fills the tabernacle at the very end of the book of Exodus, God fills the life of the church. Y'all hear that? We, the church, if you belong to Christ and you believe in Jesus, together, joined together by Jesus, we're the new temple of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And that is wonderful news. The Holy Spirit saves us and seals us, meaning no one's breaking that seal. If you belong to Christ, you will ultimately make it to life with him. He seals us and the Holy Spirit works in us and sanctifies us and makes us holy and then brings us into ultimately life with God forever. And that thread from Exodus to Matthew to John to Ephesians gets pulled all the way into the final picture of what it means to be in the presence of God. Because when you flip all the way to the end of the book in Revelation 21, we see ultimately where the presence of God is going. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 25. When Eden is restored to the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the Lamb, which is, I mean, the everlasting light. Just it, it will never end. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And the new heavens and the new earth, when Eden is restored, there is no temple. For God is with his people. And in that day, with newly resurrected bodies, we will behold God for who he is and his presence. How wonderful is that? How wonderful is that day that we look to? It goes on in Revelation 22. In the very end, it says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. We will stand in the presence of God, beholding him in his glory for who he is. That's the end result. That's where this is going. Brothers and sisters, the Israelites with all of the rituals that they had, would have, they were longing for that day. And we as Christians who have it even better with the Holy Spirit in us and access to God are longing for that day when all things are made new and with him again, when Eden is restored. So don't miss how wonderful it is that Jesus fulfills Exodus 25 to 27 
Don't miss how wonderful it is that we have access to God right now. Don't miss how wonderful it is that we have the Holy Spirit, that we are not alone. Christian, you are not alone no matter what you are facing, no matter what a sin you are dealing with. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit is inside of you and working in you for his good pleasure to bring you closer to him till one day, on that day when we stand in his presence. That day is coming. We are a people that have hope that we will be in his presence again. So I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what's in your life. But I know that day is coming and this moment in the grand scheme of eternity is a drop in the bucket. It is a vapor compared to the eternity that we have in that picture there. But also don't miss this for a moment. In order to experience that eternity with God in order to experience all of the glory and the wonder that we can't even wrap our minds around in order to have that you need to have Christ and we guys we've been in Exodus week in and week out we've seen picture after picture after picture of the gospel and some of you you may have heard this over and over again I don't, I don't know your story but some of you may have never actually seen all of this and said, I believe. Said, I, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be in his presence. Some of you have never actually owned that I, I, I need God to take over my life. I need to surrender in belief to him. And I just want to plead with you. Don't leave the book of Exodus. Don't leave all of these beautiful pictures of the gospel without surrendering your life to him because he's good and he's worthy of it. And we so badly want you to experience that picture that is coming. We so badly want you to have life with God right now. We so badly want to see you in the new heavens and new earth where we get to experience life with God forever. But you must surrender and humble yourself in belief. And we pray that you would. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ and this wonderful picture from Eden all the way to the new heavens and the new earth that we get of your presence. God, I pray that you would help us see that. And as Christians, that we would embrace the truth of that and that would mold us and shape us further into enjoying you. And I pray if there's anyone here that has not believed, that has not truly surrendered their life to you so they can experience all of that and its wonder. May you humble them to believe now. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna, band's gonna come up. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We're gonna come to the table if you are a Christian. And we're gonna remember... That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took, his, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And they took the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. It's a meal of fellowship. Just as it was in, in the tabernacle, the bread of the presence that foreshadows this later on that we get to as Christians in spite of our sin, in spite of all the ways that we've sinned against God, we get to joyously come to this fellowship table and take the bread and take and dip it in the juice and be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. That ultimately because of this, the curtain is torn and we get Christ and we get him forever. How wonderful is that?
So when you've had a moment to consider your sin, joyously come to the table in fellowship with God and with one another as the church of Jesus Christ filled with his Holy Spirit, enjoying this until the day when all things are made new. And if you're not a Christian, we ask that you would not come to this table. We ask that you would consider the gospel that we just walked through and that you would believe. So come to the table when you're ready. There's gluten-free in that back corner over there.